Did you ever notice in your favorite books or movies, the really nice people only play supporting roles? Did you notice that? Their, their story arc is a little boring. We're drawn to the main characters, the troubled, the broken characters who have something to learn. And in the same way, the church of Philadelphia could be seen as the boring church, the good student. Jesus isn't going to do any righteous stomping on the church in Philadelphia. That means this is the church that we may have the most to learn from. Even though they're facing the exact same situation as we have repeatedly seen in all of these churches throughout Asia, the same persecution, Jesus says, when I look at you, I got nothing except praise and encouragement. I want us to be that church. I want to be that, that type of Christian. So let's turn there together. It's Revelation chapter 3, and we will read it together beginning at verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And so I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears to hear, Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the Word of God. Philadelphia was started by Pergamum as a frontier town, right up against the great plateau of Asia Minor. As it grew into a city, it became the gateway to the east because all of the trade routes came right through Philadelphia. But then in AD 17, a huge earthquake rocked that whole region, and Philadelphia was significantly impacted on a major fault line. Not only did it experience the worst of the earthquake, but for a long extended season it experienced aftershocks to the point that by the time John writes his letter, most of the population of Philadelphia was not living in the city. Think about this. They'd moved to the suburbs. Because the buildings were not safe to live in. Rome would eventually rebuild Philadelphia, and the church there, which now is described as weak, we'll get to that in a moment, will become a significant player as the city was in reaching the east by trade. The church will help reach Asia Minor for the gospel. And by the 
fourth century under Constantine, Philadelphia will be sitting right in the heart of the largest population of Christianity in the Roman Empire, right in the heart of it. So its days are coming. But at this point in this writing, Philadelphia is a city past its prime, people of influence sitting outside the city. How like our city is Philadelphia? Think about it. Did you know that Worcester was founded as a frontier town? There was a time when the frontier of the United States was just west of us. Worcester grew and became a prominent industrial city because of the canal, a gateway of prosperity and industry, and not a physical earthquake, but certainly upheaval came to Worcester. Societal, technological upheaval. Worcester struggling to find its place in the new reality. And then World War II and the GI Bill and those who benefited from the loaning practices of banks in that day which were biased and prejudiced resulted in the white flight, the money and the influence, and most of the businesses moved to the suburbs. And so we reached a point where Worcester was seen as a city well past its prime. And the churches in the suburbs started looking at Worcester as their mission field. Like Philadelphia, we're we're seeing a rebuilding happening here that's bigger than the grid. God's rebuilding his church in the city as well. But we actually can relate a lot to these people. To the church in Philadelphia, Jesus says this, I know your deeds. I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. You have kept my command to endure patiently. There's four things that Jesus says about the Christians in Philadelphia. The first is just an observation. You have little strength. Now, some pastors have used this passage to suggest that the church in Philadelphia was your classic little church. And the reason why Jesus doesn't have anything to say to them is because he's partial to little churches. That's really an abuse of this passage. The word for strength is dunamis, what we get the word dynamite from. It's the same word that Jesus promised would be in every believer's life when we receive the Holy Spirit. You will receive power, dunamis, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That word is about strength and influence. And what he's saying to the church is, I know that you have been marginalized by your culture. I know that you are not welcome. And because they were suffering from the same challenges as other churches but remaining faithful, that faithfulness to Jesus had contributed to this. Remember the three primary sources of hardship. First was the emperor cult. Every good Roman citizen, at least annually, needed to offer sacrifice and declare that Caesar was their Lord, their their divine God. Christians couldn't do that. And so they were closed off to the elite, to the influential, to the better jobs. And so they were impoverished simply because they were faithful to the one Lord that they worshiped, Jesus Christ. And then there was the synagogue. Originally, when Paul began his missions trips, remember, it was the synagogue that he first went to. Why? Because Jesus Christ was their Messiah. And very often it was the converts who were Jews that then became the starting point for reaching across 
culture and creating a church that is now neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, the ultimate church that Jesus had in mind. But by this point in time, the synagogue, rather than being a place where the majority of Jewish people had acknowledged their Messiah, said, look, we're done with this business. You're heretics. And so they closed the door of the synagogue to the Christians. And in doing that, they lost the protection of Judaism, considered one of the long-standing respected religions in the Roman Empire. And now the Christians were not that, and the Jews made it clear to Rome, and they were the object of persecution. And then third, there were the Judaizers, those that were willing to accept Jesus as the Messiah, but yet they ran back into the laws of Judaism. And they said Jesus wasn't enough. The cross wasn't enough. You needed to come under the Mosaic law. You need to find your righteousness and obedience to the law. They had found refuge in the synagogue and were contributing to the persecution of Christians. Now, this is what I want you to think about. Every church, like the city of Philadelphia itself, is meant to sit at the crossroads of the human race. We are meant to be the gateway between the city of man and the kingdom of God. And what the great enemy of Jesus does is bring pressure on us to move off of that position that we are to play in God's great plan. There's pressure from society that says, would you please lighten up Why be so convicted about some of these moral standards that the rest of us find offensive? And why be so firm about Jesus being the way? Let him be one way. Acknowledge our faith is legitimate. And if you do that, well, you'll be welcome to the table, a significant part of our society. Some of the seven churches that we've seen gave in to that pressure. They made that compromise, and we have seen that throughout history. In fact, we see the result of that compromise in churches all over New England. Churches that at one time were the charter churches. In other words, the town was chartered because that church was going to be at the heart of it where the gospel was preached. At some point said, we'll seek our significance with culture by softening our message. We'll walk away from scriptures, our authority, We'll walk away from Jesus and the gospel. We'll we'll soften it. And you know what happened? Those churches have increasingly become irrelevant to culture and to God. I came across this video that I want to play for you. I think it was the late 1970s. It's a comedy sketch from Great Britain. So I want to warn you, it's very British. And there are uh, closed captioned uh, for, the, for the British impaired. At one time, you know, the Church of England was part of that great Western culture rise of Christianity, but then took that same path and softened in order to become more a part of the fabric of society. And what happened was, instead of being more respected, they became the object of ridicule. By this point, England itself had been declared as post-Christian. There were so few committed Christians that they no longer considered it a Christian nation. Watch how secular society viewed the church. Prime Minister, the Commission is offering you the two names which emerged. 
Was there an open election? Ah, there can't be an open election. Bishops are seen as part of the apostolic succession. What's that? It's God's will. <laughs> when uh, Judas Iscariot blotted his copybook, he had to be replaced, so they let the Holy Ghost decide. How did he make his views known? By drawing lots. <laughs> Couldn't we let the Holy Ghost decide this time? No one is confident that the Holy Ghost would understand what makes a good Church of England bishop. Uh, Sir Humphrey is due to meet with you now, Prime Minister. Would you mind, Peter, if we continued this tomorrow? Uh, not at all. Thank you, Prime Minister. Hmm. Uh, Prime Minister, appointing Canon Stanford might be a bit of an own goal. May I go and get his career details? Yes, please do. And uh, I'll send Sir Humphrey in. Mm. Prime Minister. Ah, oh, Humphrey. Sherry? Yes, thank you. <laughs> Humphrey, what's a modernist in the Church of England? Ah, well, the word modernist is code for non-believer. <laughs> you mean an atheist? No, no, Prime Minister. An atheist clergyman couldn't continue to draw his stipend. So, when they stop believing in God, they call themselves modernists. <laughs> How could the Church of England suggest an atheist as Bishop of Bury St Edmunds? Well, very easily. The Church of England is primarily a social organisation, not a religious one. Is it? Oh, yes. It's part of the rich social fabric of this country. So bishops need to be the sort of chaps who speak properly, know which knife and fork to use. <laughs> sort of people one can look up to. So that's what Peter meant when he said that Canon Stanford's wife was eminently suitable. Of course. Yes. Is there really no other possible candidate? Well, not really. There are a couple of better jobs available recently, you see. What's better than a bishop? A rook? Oh. <laughs> Very droll. <laughs> no, well, the Dean of Windsor is a better job, or Westminster... Such preferment enables one to be on intimate terms with the royals. So being a bishop is just a matter of status. A question of dressing up in cassocks and gaiters. Yes, <laughs> though gaiters are now only worn at significant religious events, like the Royal Garden Party. <laughs> well, the church is trying to be more relevant. To God? No, of course not, Prime Minister. <laughs> relevant in sociological terms. So the ideal candidate from the Church of England's point of view would be a cross between a, a socialite and a socialist. Precisely. <laughs> Let me, uh, just interrupt. Uh, mm. May I give you the career details of Canon Stanford? Yes, please do. Well, after theological college, he became chaplain to the Bishop of Sheffield. He moved on to be the diocesan advisor on ethnic communities and social responsibility. Mm. He also organised conferences on interfaith interface and interface between Christians and Marxists and between Christians and the women of Greenham Common. <laughs> then he went on to be the university chaplain at the University of Essex, then vice-principal of a theological college and is now, as you know, secretary to the disarmament committee of the British Council of Churches. Has he ever been an ordinary vicar of a parish? Good <laughs> heavens, no, Prime Minister. <laughs> Clergymen who want to be bishops try to avoid pastoral work. What you're saying is that Canon Stanford is a political troublemaker. Well, not exactly, but it could be a thorn in your side on several issues. Strikes, public expenditure on welfare, inner cities, unemployment, defence. It's interesting, isn't it, that nowadays politicians want to talk about moral issues and bishops want to talk politics. <laughs> and he'd speak with the authority of a bishop and as a member of the Lords. He designed a new church in South London and on the plans were places for dispensing orange juice, family planning and organising demos. <laughs> But no place for Holy Communion. Are you serious? Uh, well, there was a dual-purpose hall in which you could hold a service. And the church approved this? Well, of course. 
You see, the church is run by theologians. How do you mean? Well, theology is a device for enabling agnostics to stay within the church. I don't want Canon Stanford. What am I to do? Well, you could turn both candidates down, but that would be exceptional and not advised. Even though one of them wants to get God out of the Church of England and the other wants to get the Queen out? Well, the Queen is inseparable from the Church of England. Okay. What about God? I think he's what's called an optional extra. Very British. Very droll. So sad and true all at the same time. Now, let me, let me just share some things. God has been at work in Great Britain over the last several decades. There's been a great evangelical movement within Anglicanism. And today, four out of the five major bishops of the Church of England are evangelicals, including the Bishop of Canterbury, the Archbishop, the spiritual head of the uh, Anglican Church. So God is at work because there were those who remained faithful and were steadfast, and, and God has begun to work in them. But that is how culture sees a church that is sold out. It, there's no relevance. I mean, here's the thing. If you take away the reason why there's Christianity because of Jesus and the gospel and grace, you take that away, <laughs> there's a lot easier ways to live your life. This is not a life worth living if Jesus isn't Lord. It's too hard. Of the mainline denominations, many of whom have given in to that pressure we talked about from culture, there's one denomination that predicts that in the next 10 years, the attendance at their churches in Vermont will drop by 80%. It's just people that are dying off. The enemy shifts us off of the place we're meant to play in society when we yield to that pressure. And the other pressure is just as difficult. That's the fundamentalist pressure that says, it's just too hard. Pull yourself out of culture. Let's cloister ourselves off into this works-based righteousness. Pulling ourselves out of culture in that radical, fundamentalist, legalistic way also is denying the place that we're to hold loving Jesus and loving our neighbor, sitting at the crossroads, the gateway into life everlasting in Jesus. You see, the very thing that resulted in this congregation being weak, insignificant in the eyes of its culture were the very things that Jesus found worthy. And so he makes these three observations commendations. You have kept my word. They have not compromised the word of God. You have not denied my name. They have remained faithful to Jesus Christ alone as Lord. And you have endured patiently while others have given in to the pressure. They had not given in in spite of the hardship and persecution. So because of that, Jesus has no criticism for them. He only has praise and some amazing promises that every church, every believer should want to be shared with them. So let's just quickly now look at the Jesus of Philadelphia. Let's say it together. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. 
what he shuts, no one can open. And then later on he says, I am coming soon. This is who Jesus wants to remind these believers that he is. First of all, he's holy and true. Unmistakable designation of the Old Testament Jehovah. Jesus is reminding them, yes, you're right. I am the one true God. And he holds the keys. Jesus is the one path to God and his kingdom. And then he reminds them, I am coming. As dark as it seems right now, God's plan will come to pass. And it will come sooner than you think. Now, you might be thinking, well, 2,000 years have gone since Jesus said, I'm coming soon. Isn't that proof enough that this is just a fable? Well, the language there is not really about timeline. They need to be ready for him to come because nothing can keep him from coming except the will of the Father and the purposes of the Father. So for the believer, the idea of the soon return of Jesus is meant to be the norm in our lives. It's meant to drive our expectation. The fact is, the writers of the New Testament believed that Jesus could return in their lifetime and hoped for it. And so we hope for it. And at least we know we're 2,000 years closer. And remember what Scripture says about the Lord's timing, especially in relation to this very issue of the coming of the Lord. To the Lord, a day is like a thousand, and a thousand like a day. For those of us that have been faithful, that is something we long for because all of the waiting, all the patience, all of the faithfulness to our purpose and plan will be part of that coming and that finishing of the work. It's this Jesus that says this to the believers in Philadelphia. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come and I will make you a pillar in the temple of God. What an amazing set of promises. First of all, he says to them, I know your city has closed you off. They've shut the door to privilege and opportunity and acceptance. And I know that the synagogue that has shut the door of their fellowship to you doesn't matter because the door that matters is wide open. It's the door that I open with the keys of the kingdom. And no one will ever shut that. Your eternal destiny, your eternal home is secure. It's the only thing that matters. Then he says, I will honor you. Those very people that right now are minimizing, marginalizing, persecuting, putting you to death, someday will need to kneel, not just before me, but they'll kneel before you as my bride. And they will acknowledge that you are the ones that I truly love. In Ephesians 2, when Paul talks about that we are saved by grace alone through faith, he goes on, he says, this is all true so that in the ages to come, God will point to us and say, there, that's what my grace is about. This is what my love brings forth. This is my bride, radiant, glorious. He says, someday the very people that are mocking you will see who you truly are and you will be honored for all of eternity. Then he says, I will protect you. The judgment that's going to come on the world, you will not have any part of. 
You'll be delivered from that judgment. You're covered by the blood of Jesus. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, and I will make of, of that church a pillar in the temple of God. Now, now that is illustrative. And it speaks of God's eternal plan, the project that he's about. And he's saying to this church, even though it's hard to see the impact right now, the time will come when my plan is done and you'll see how important you were to that project. You will be like a pillar in the temple of God. You will understand how critical you were to my glorious plan. Now here's another thing about a pillar. Ancient pillars were also inscribed on. Usually a dedication. He says not only in the ages to come, when I finish my grand project of rebuilding the heaven and the earth, and all the world is my temple, and I sit at the throne being worshiped for all of eternity, not only will you understand how essential you were to that as a pillar, I'm gonna honor you with an inscription. And here's not what the inscription will say. This pillar is erected in honor of the church in Philadelphia who endured faithfully under persecution. Won't say that. The name, the church in Philadelphia, will not even be invoked. What will the name be that is on that pillar? I will write on them the name of my God, the name of the city of God. And I, Jesus Christ, will write my new name, which is yet to be revealed. You see the point here? It doesn't matter in the context of eternity if the name of Journey Community Church is known and honored. What matters is that when people hear about us, it's the name of Jesus that is honored and glorified. These are the questions we need to ask. Same questions that the Church of Philadelphia answered faithfully, and they are these. From whom are we seeking significance? And for whom are we seeking honor? You need to ask that question as a human being. We need to ask it as a church. And the answer must always be this. We exist and live to bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ alone. It is that church that he looks at with only praise because we live to only bring praise and glory to him. Isaiah put it this way. Let's say this as we close. Yes, Lord, we walk in your way as we wait earnestly for you, for your name and your renown are the desire of our heart. Father, may that be true of the journey. May people see us in this city, even a city that's rising, even as your people are rising in this city, may May we make much of the name of Jesus. Amen.